It's early 1942, and the Nazis are racing to build an atomic bomb. They have the scientists. They have the will. What they don't have is enough heavy water, an essential ingredient needed to build Hitler's wonder weapon. And clearly, such a next-generation weapon is needed, as the USSR, under Stalin, has failed to collapse in on itself at the end of 1941, as Der Fuhrer had famously predicted. And now, the industrial might of the United States is officially an Allied partner. And now, the Allies are working on their own wonder weapon, and are on the same path as the Nazi scientists. The race is on to see who can create the first atomic bomb. While the Americans, with British help, are struggling to be the first, Britain must make sure the German effort is hampered, as London would surely be the first to feel the effects of a Nazi success. However, the Nazis' Achilles' heel is the Norwegian plant Norsk Hydro's Vemork, which is the only entity in the world producing the heavy water. It's currently in Nazi hands, but the process is slow. Which brings us to our guest. With us today is Neil Bascom, the author of Hunting Eichmann, How a Band of Survivors and a Young Spy Agency Chased Down the World's Most Notorious Nazi, to discuss his latest book, The Winter Fortress, The Epic Mission to Sabotage Hitler's Atomic Bomb. Thank you, Mr. Bascom, for being with us. Now it's wonderful to be here. All right. So um, I just finished your book. It was a very riveting read. Um, I had read uh, Honey Nightman. I enjoyed that as well. But I'm I'm looking forward to everybody else getting their hands on this uh, this book we're about to talk about. Um, and when does this when does the Winter Fortress come out? The uh, Winter Fortress uh, publishes May third. Okay, this excellent. year. Okay, excellent. So, so how about we just uh, jump into this? Um, so, both sides are trying to develop the next generation, if you will, of bombs to get that advantage because the war has been going on and both sides needed to end. Um, if you could just please just give us an idea of what both sides are trying to do, what the significance of their accomplishment, accomplishments would be, the significance of heavy water. And as you do that, just please keep in mind that my scientific background consists of nothing more than <laughs> Bill Nye, the science guy and the Big Bang Theory, Okay. Fantastic. All right. So, so let's let's sort of bring it back a little bit um, to 1939. Okay. Um, and uh, the discovery of the splitting of the atom. Mm-hmm. Now, for a very long time in sort of physics circles, uh, people had known that if they could somehow unlock the power of the atom, the sort of binding power of the atom, they would have a tremendous resource at their hands. They didn't know if it was possible. Ah. But in 1939, right before World War II, uh, a German chemist and his assistant discovered that, in fact, you could split an atom and that they had done it. Now, at that moment um, in Germany uh, and in the United States, scientists and physicists came to the same very clear conclusion. they needed to be the first to uh, harness the power of the atom, harness the power of the splitting of the atom uh, for the purposes, to, a twofold purpose. One, power, mm-hmm. uh, potentially to power submarines or various other engines. Um, but secondly, and perhaps most importantly, they wanted to create a bomb, a super explosive, something the world had never seen before. Right. And so you have, by the start of 1940, German scientists, uh, some uh, closely associated with uh, the German army. In fact, the leader of the of the uh, of science uh, for the Germans in atomic weapons was the was an officer in the German army. And simultaneously, in the United States and in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, scientists are doing intensive early research into how do we uh, how do we split the atom further? Uh, how do we foster a chain reaction? How do we create an atomic bomb? Right. And very early in, in 1940 and, and then moving into to 1941, uh, most of the science, scientists come to the conclusion that they can do that one of two ways. They can create the, an explosive by either enriching uranium, mm-hmm. meaning sort of make it very pure, 
because the explosive part of uranium is comes in a very small part uh, to the more common uranium. Uh, or they could build a reactor, um, and this reactor would would foster a chain reaction that would be under control, that that chain reaction would, and I know I'm, I may be stretching the science here, but, but stay with me. Sure. Um, that, that reactor could create, um, as part of its process, plutonium. Mm-hmm. And that plutonium is the explosive uh, ingredient that they would use for a bomb. Now, the Germans uh, decided that in order to create or in order to build this nuclear reactor, uh, they needed something called a moderator, something to help uh, promote the splitting of atoms mm-hmm. the, uh, into a chain reaction. Right. And the ingredient that they chose for that was, was something called heavy water. Now, very simply, heavy water is uh, it's based on an isotope uh, or a variant of, of regular hydrogen. It has an extra neutron, which makes it heavier. And this heavy water has the property of, of both slowing down bombarding neutrons that cause atoms to split without absorbing them and stealing them from being able to split other atoms. Uh, okay. And so this is heavy water. This is the importance of heavy water. And there's a single plant in the whole world in 1942 that produces heavy water at any scale, and that heavy water plant is in Norway. That's amazing. So, and I remember reading at first, they had really had a trouble justifying it financially. Nobody was ordering large amounts of heavy water. You know, what were they going to do with it? So they couldn't produce a lot. So by the time Germany comes, they want the entire program stepped up. And they're like, you know, we can only do so much so fast. But Germany is taking this very seriously and they do whatever they can to, to, I guess, to increase the production of heavy water. Correct, and you know it's it's a very interesting story. This 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 plant in in Norway called Vermuk, mm-hmm. uh, which was owned by a big Norwegian industrial firm, Norse Kidro, and uh, heavy water is discovered in the early 30s. And this scientist chemist named Leif Tronstad, Norwegian uh, professor who also consults for all these industrial concerns in Norway, mm-hmm. sort of rising star of the Norwegian scientific establishment. He says, well, you know, in order, to, in order to produce heavy water, you need a lot of power and you need a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And there's one place in all of Norway that has that, this Vermouth hydroelectric plant. And he doesn't, Latronset doesn't know what people are going to use heavy water for. Uh, he thinks maybe for cancer research. He knows maybe for atomic research. He thinks, and some people joke that it, it'll build a better skating rink. Uh, he doesn't actually care <laughs> right. what it's for. He just wants, he's a scientist, and he wants to see if it can be done. Gotcha. And so he does. He builds this process. It, it, it is an, uh, enormously successful in, in producing heavy water, but it's a financial disaster for North Hydro. They shutter it until the fissioning of the atom, and suddenly it's booming business. So it's suddenly such a prob, you know, a beyond price commodity. So when when the Nazi Germany invades Norway in April of uh, they occupy in the spring of 1940. Okay, I'm sorry, that's right. I'm getting my uh, month right, year wrong. Sorry. Um, that's about right. Yeah. So so to and it, I guess the ironic thing is, as far as I could tell in your book. Um, it wasn't not the number one reason Hitler invaded Norway had nothing to do with heavy water, as far as I could tell. It seemed to just be a race between no, I, Hitler and Churchill. Who could get there first? Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, as, as I describe it in the, in the book and, and maybe uh, in an early version of, of, of a draft, it's, you know, Norway at a certain point was, uh, was a ball of yarn that two cats were trying to <laughs> paw around. Right. Um, and the, the British wanted it, and, and the Germans wanted it, largely for the, for the, the coast, uh, oh. the, uh, the control of the, of the coast uh, and the waters. And heavy water, again, they wanted it, um, but it was by no means in the military plans. That said, when, Ger- when Germany invaded Norway, uh, the Germans made very sure that they uh, took control of Vermont very quickly Gosh. and began uh, t- they increased production by tenfold within the matter of uh, a small window of time. 
Wow. Okay. So, so both sides are trying to achieve the, the rough, uh, the same thing. Um, and, and for London, I, I find this really interesting for London, the fighting with Germany, Nazi Germany has gotten personal. I mean, they refuse to get out of it. They're bombing each other. And London's got to know that if the Germans come up with any form of this bomb, they're probably going to be the first ones to realize it. So, London very quickly has to get the United, you know, once Pearl Harbor comes, they have to get the United States involved. And I think even though it was a very short conversation between FDR and Churchill, it's pretty much decided to do the work in the United States where it's relatively safe. But Britain is going to contribute whatever they can to this process. But basically, the race is on at this point. No, the, the, the race is absolutely on. By, by 1942, um, it's very clear. And in fact... Uh, in propaganda films that reached the Allies uh, that the Germans uh, created, uh, there were, you know, maps of, of London and huge explosions basically obliterating it. Wow. So I don't think the Allies had any uh, misconception that uh, Hitler wanted to annihilate, obliterate, uh, bomb into uh, dust, uh, whatever he could in terms of, of London. So... Yes, the, the race is, is on uh, by 1942, and by the start of 1942, it's, it, they're pretty much neck and neck. The Germans have done the preliminary research, the preliminary theoretical work. They've uh, they secured uranium and, and began to secure enough heavy water, and simultaneously in the United States, they've done the, done the basic research. They have what they need, and now it's let's move forward. Wow. Okay. So, so the race is on. So I guess for, for the British, okay, America, we're going to give you everything we can. I hope you get this bomb created as soon as you possibly can, but even that's not good enough. They have to do whatever they can given their proximity to slow down or stop the Germans. And so clearly some kind of plan is needed. They've got to do something to throw a monkey wrench into the works at, at Vermouk. Yes, and and this is this is the case, and, and there actually were high level discussions in, in Churchill's administration as well as Roosevelt's administration. There's two ways two ways to win the race. You're the first one to do it. B, you hobble your opponent, um, and uh, the B, uh, hobble your opponent, was on the minds of the Americans as well as the British. And here's the thing: they need one thing. They really didn't know much about the German atomic bomb program. Mm-hmm. Um, but thanks to uh, an individual named Leif Tronstadt, who actually built the heavy water plant, um, and he, uh, after the Germans occupied Norway, he went underground. He began uh, basically becoming a spy and, and delivering intelligence to the Allies of the German interest uh, in heavy water at Vermont. And so the Allies knew that that heavy water was a key ingredient to the German atomic research program. And it was really the only thing they knew about the atomic research program. And so they very deliberately um, said, we need to do everything we can to stop this plant um, from producing anything more. And the initial idea from both the Americans and the British as early as uh, December 1941, but gathering steam uh, in early 1942 was, we're just going to bomb this plant from the air. Right. But but Tronstad, who um, obviously can tell him about it inside and out. Now, I can't remember exactly when he comes over to London, but he, he can only do so much for his country as a resistance, um, either fighter or, or gathering intelligence, because what he has to offer as a scientist is so much more if he can get over there. So he seems to be crucial saying, no, you don't want a bomb. And here's why. Exactly. I mean, Tronstadt's one of my favorite individuals in, 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 the, in the course of the story, and he's in, in many ways a hero um, beyond the actual saboteurs themselves, the commandos. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a kind of a different hero, but so he in 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 the fall of 1941, the Gestapo learns that he's been uh, providing information. They they descend on his house. He escapes an hour before that. Uh, wow. He leaves his wife and two children safely. Uh, with some relatives, and he um, skis and hikes and uh, his way across the Swedish border, takes a plane to London, arrives in London. They say, you should work in the scientific establishment to help our military uh, science. Um, and he says, no, I want to I wanna 
find a way to fight more directly for my country. Right. Um, and so he joins the Norwegian exiled Norwegian high command army. Um, and suddenly, not suddenly, but over the course of months, finds himself sort of at the nexus of Norwegian high command army um, and a British uh, SOE uh, special operations executive, uh, mm-hmm. the commando uh, yeah. operations of, of the British. So as angry as he is, as much as he wants to go back over there with some help and fight the Germans, that's not his best way uh, to contribute. So he's able to take his knowledge and explain to the British. And if you could give us an idea of uh, what was his what was his point of view as far as not bombing? Why shouldn't the British just go over there with a bunch of planes and just bomb the heck out of the facility? Wouldn't that take care of everything? Yes. So so Tronstadt says. You can bomb it, um, but here's what's going to happen. One, you're going to kill a lot of civilians because mm-hmm. Vermouk is um, by this town named Rukan, which has 5,000 inhabitants, all who work uh, at the plant or the surrounding plant, innocent civilians. So you're going to kill them. And secondly, you're going to kill them, and you're not going to destroy the plant because it is, as the title of my book goes, a winter fortress. <laughs> it's this enormous right. uh, steel and stone uh, and glass building, um, and the heavy water facility is in the basement. So over 10,000 pounds of, tens of thousands of pounds of steel and stone, uh, you can bomb it from the air all day, and you're still not going to touch the planet. Right. So it might make the British feel better, but it's not going to achieve what the objective is as far as slowing down the Germans. So I guess eventually they either listen to him or or whatever, but they decide, yes, we need to sabotage this, uh, as opposed to blowing it up, as opposed to bombing it. But first, we got to get some eyes on the ground, some boots on the ground. Can you tell us a little bit about, if I haven't skipped anything, please let me know if I have, but tell us a little about the uh, the Grouse team or the Grouse operation. Sure. So, now, if it was up to live Tronset, he would have parachuted single-handedly into Norway and <laughs> gone and attacked the planet itself. Because, I mean, that's how gung-ho he was. Right. Uh, but... But the British are like, well, you're, you're too big of a brain and, and you're, you're too effective here. We need mm-hmm. you here. Um, but so he begins to operationally plan this. And from, from Norway comes over this young man named Einar Schinnerland, uh, who's a dam supervisor at the hydroelectric dam mm-hmm. in, around the plant. And he had come over to fight like many other uh, young Norwegians, had uh, escaped by boat, he actually hijacked a boat, uh, got to England, said, I want to be trained to fight. And, and Leif Tronstadt says, well, you, you actually live um, right at this plant. And not only do you live there, but, but your family works there and you work there and you know everyone in the area. Right. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a week. You're going to learn how to parachute and we're going to drop you back. And so everyone is going to think you just went on a skiing vacation. <laughs> And so poor Einar Schindelin, who actually has a, uh, a, a just had surgery on his leg um, from a skiing accident, gets mm. this rudimentary training uh, and is parachuted back into the ground. And he is he is uh, the central point of intelligence now uh, for the ongoing operations. And so the British decide, OK, here we go. We need an operation. We're going to send some some royal engineers, about 35 of them. Um, Royal Engineer Commandos, Parachute Commandos, um, into to be dropped into the area, and they're going to go attack the plant. And Schindlerlin's providing all the intelligence on all the security and, and minefields and searchlights and guard patrols. But these sappers, these Royal Engineers, they need people to, for lack of a better word, be a welcome party. Right. To be on the ground uh, to say, okay, uh, put out lights for the planes and also to lead them, guide them to the plant. And so here comes Operation Grouse, which is a four-man team led by an individual named uh, John Anton Paulson, um, who is a member of what's called Company Ling, which is the SOE-trained Norwegian commando forces. Okay. And he is a local to the area, too. And he is dropped by parachute uh, with his three uh, compatriots in October of uh, 1942 to be the the spearhead of this uh, British uh, operation. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. 
At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Okay, so, so far so good. The British have decided to sabotage, not bomb. They're going to send in their team uh, to get, to send an A-team to get everything ready, and they're going to train their, um, their sappers to go in there and blow it up. So far, everything's fine. Uh, but then I think it's somewhere around October of 1942, Hitler puts out the word that, you know, forget, forget chivalry. All commandos, all special forces are to be killed. There's no time for mercy. We need these people eliminated. And if we do it cruelly, uh, cruelly enough, maybe they'll stop sending them over because he, you know, as the leader of an army, he gets the value of what some, you know, the, a lot of damage that the commandos could cause. So he puts the word out, death to all of the commandos that you come across. Correct. And this, this literally happened within a month's time of all these initial operations of, at Vermont. So these British commandos, these Norwegian commandos, they are suddenly, if they're captured, they won't be. They will be killed mm-hmm. on site immediately. And um, so this is, the, this is the sort of atmosphere uh, in which they're working. So the British now plan this operation, and, and they sort of sideline Tronstadt at this point. I mean, he is basically becoming an information source, mm-hmm. but he's not the one making the decisions, not doing the ultimate planning. This is now a British Army uh, engineered operation called Operation Freshman. Yeah. And and they had all good intentions and very brave young sappers uh, who were sadly put on a mission that, that probably didn't have much of a chance to succeed. Because the British decide that they need to, to bring in these troops silently, together as a unit, uh, with gear. Uh, they decide that parachuting them in uh, would be troublesome because they would be dispersed, and who knows where they're going to land. So they're going to use gliders, uh, power uh, engineless gliders that will be towed across the North Sea, uh, released uh, over uh, the area. They would glide down softly into the snow, arguably, mm-hmm. and uh, and the mission would come off without it without a hitch. Okay. The, the problem is this is happening in the winter time. Uh, the Vida, which is the area around Vermilk, is this uh, rocky, uh, mountainous uh, plateau, which one mile looks exactly like the next. Uh, uh, it's sort of like the moon, right. and uh, and these gliders. Uh, come across, they're, they're released. Uh, one plane, one of the towing gliders, the Halifax, crashes into a mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the released glider crashes into a mountain. Another glider is, is the rope is severed because of ice. It crashes in the mountain, and, and the operation is just a unmitigated disaster. Yeah, so so again, the wrong time of the year, uh, the, the the cold. I guess maybe there's fog or clouds or whatever. And so, which should have been a pretty sizable, experienced team of, as far as I can remember, British soldiers. Um, suddenly, that's a catastrophe. Um, mo- most of the men are dead, and the, there are some that have survived, and they're going to be captured by the Germans. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think some of them were killed right away maybe per Hitler's orders, but then some of them were, was, was some of them uh, saved and uh, questioned later? Or questioned? Yeah, so there was, this, there was this commando order, right? And the commando order was kill immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't capture. Um, and that was a uh, German army order. Uh, but the Gestapo uh, had a very different mandate, which mm-hmm. was to... Uh, capture people, interrogate them, torture them if need be, uh, to find out what is the target and what is the method. Um, so some of these soldiers uh, who survived this crash uh, in what was already called a wooden coffin, these gliders, mm. um, th- those that weren't killed immediately by German soldiers, they were brought to Oslo, put in um, a uh, detention center, tortured, um, 
And ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the Germans knew by November 1942 um, the target, how the, the sappers were going to attack it, um, pretty much everything, right. including the fact that there was men on the ground who were there to help, uh, which launches a massive manhunt. Right. So, so the Germans now pretty much have all the intelligence. You just have to assume they're going to beef up uh, defense, which is going to make any future attempt uh, it, that much harder. But could you give us an idea of the team that is that was in the field, you know, setting the lights for these guys? Because wasn't there, I don't know how to say his name. Is it, is it Paulson, Poulsen? Paulson. Yeah, Paulson. Okay. If you can give us a little That's right. Idea. I, butch- I butcher them too. Okay, good. Um, I feel better so, now. So, so yes, I mean, so, so they're on hand. They're, they're in the snow sending out radio signals, waiting for these planes to come. They never come. They hear the engines, but they, the, the planes and the gliders never arrive. Right. They're told three days later these planes have, have either crashed or the gliders, the people have been captured, and you need to run into the mountains. Right. So, so you have these four men mm-hmm. who are commandos, who are also very good cross-country skiers, who are hunters, who know the terrain, uh, who ha- probably have the best chance of survival of anyone in the world to what they now have to face, which is several months of surviving in the Vita, a place that was, you know, legend had it grew uh, so cold so fast in blizzards that flames froze in the fire. I mean, it is just an awful place to be. Uh, in the winter time, if you're not just out there for a little nice cross country ski, right? I just have to tell you, I was reading that part of the book, and you, and you, first of all, through the entire book, you throw in everything, including the kitchen sink, and I just loved all the t- details. So I wanted to thank you. But I'm sitting there reading about the skiing and the snow and the ice, and they're slipping and they're getting wet and they're frozen. And I'm reading this. It's 75, de- 75 degrees weather where I live. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, and I'm getting cold just thinking about these guys. I mean, that's that's how well you paint the picture. So you really get a sense of um, Norway would be nice on a postcard, but I certainly wouldn't want to go there during the winter. But uh, and I was struck the other part was when the report finally gets to Churchill about the absolute unmitigated disaster, the deaths, the um, just the way it was all cocked up. And he just writes, alas, on the report. Yes, I mean, I, it's, you know, from 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 our perspective now, as so many decades later, that seems very coarse and. Um, unfeeling. Right. But you have to imagine what Churchill and Roosevelt and, and Churchill, who, you know, experienced uh, at least some parts of World War One and the just slaughter there. Mm-hmm. Um, but now World War Two is no uh, no party either. Uh, there are men dying in the, in the thousands uh, all over the place. Um, and this was just in some ways another bad mark and probably what was a long list of bad marks uh, on any given day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, um, within a day of Operation Freshman, the glider operation with the sappers going awry, uh, the importance of the mission is so preeminent right. that a new mission uh, is launched called Operation Gunnerside. Gotcha. So yeah, and um, and and if it helps, when I was reading that part about Churchill, it certainly didn't come across as um, unfeeling. I mean, you could almost sense his like, you know, that's that's how it is, and there'll be more deaths, you know, after this. So uh, so I, I thought it really captured that moment well. So so the men are told to go pr- pretty much hide because they can only do this at certain times of the month, I guess. And um, so they're going to have to hide. The Germans are following them. But like you said, because this is so important, another team, Gunnerside, is start to to be put together, assembled, so they can rehearse and practice and get ready. Could you give us an idea of some of the players of Team Gunnerside? Sure. But before I launch in that, I, I will say about these, these Grouse team members, the ones who have to survive, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of this story that is very much about, you know, uh, beating the Germans. But I think at its core... Mm-hmm. Uh, this story is a, you know, they, these guys would not have been able to pull off these operations. Um, their main enemy in some ways was nature, was the Vita. Right. And uh, that's what the grouse faced. 
Now, Gunnerside is this operation that is led by a, a young man that is selected for it, a 23-year-old Norwegian uh, second lieutenant uh, named Joachim Ronenberg. Wow. And he had never, uh, he had no military experience um, in terms of actual battle experience. He had been, uh, he had come over from Norway uh, on a boat. He had been trained by the SOE and then became a trainer for the SOE. Mm-hmm. But he had never seen battle, never led men in the actual field of operations. Um, and it was a remarkable, um, brave <laughs> uh, choice on the part of of Tronstadt and his counterparts in the SOE to to pick him. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it, it ended up being a brilliant choice. I mean, Ronenberg was uh, very strategic, very tactically good. He was calm. He was a good leader. Uh, and, uh, he was just very effective in the field. Uh, and the question was, would he be able to, uh, maintain that when he was actually there? Right. And, and be the leader of, of, of his team. So, so just to sum up, so the, the allies realize what's going on. They realize the importance of the heavy water. They've had their first attempt, which, went horribly wrong, but they start forming a second team right away. And I found it interesting that they said this time, no, we're going to go with Norwegians. We're going to put them in British uniforms. Could you tell us uh, some of the significance of that, please? So the significance of the British uniforms um, was if Norwegian commandos were caught in Norwegian uniforms sabotaging their milk or any other place, uh, there would be severe uh, repercussions for the local Norwegian population. Uh. Uh, and because who knows where these Norwegians came from? Uh, did they, you know, they could be local boys, they could be whatever. And so they decided that the Tronstadt and the British decided whoever goes in is going to be a British uniform. But they decided that only, at this point, they decide only Norwegians can pull this off. Only someone, only people who know the terrain only people who were in some ways literally born with cross-country skis on their feet uh, could reach the plant uh, and not only reach the plant, but escape once the operation is over. And so they, this gunner side operation has grouse on the ground waiting for them who are all local boys. Mm-hmm. And they have these six team members from gunner side who are trained uh, in blowing up the heavy water plant and are expert commandos. Uh, and then there's uh, Schinnerland, who's still on the ground in hiding um, around Vermook, continuing to provide intelligence as well as assistance to the, the whole team. Okay. So this entire time, the Germans are doing everything they can to increase production of heavy water, get it back to Germany as quickly as they can to keep their experiments going. Now, so Team Grouse um, is going to be waiting for a while. Um, I think there are at this point some reprisals against the locals for the attempt for now that the Germans know that there are are people on the ground. I'm going to get you to us talk about that a little bit, but I just wanted to make very clear in this book, you do an excellent job of making the point that this is truly, in some ways, a story about men, about humans versus nature. You go into great uh, detail about what they had to do to survive, the hunger, the lack of vitamins, what it was doing to their body, their cold, they're just trying to survive, and also not to be blunt, not not to go insane over the months that you know weeks and months that they're going to have to. Um, survive all this, but I could not, <laughs> I could not pass this part without Paulson shooting the deer. He's absolutely starving. He's excited that he's going to bring some meat back to his men. But to keep up his strength, I guess he actually drinks some of the deer, the reindeer blood, right there before he starts cutting into his kill. Yes, I mean, at a certain point in this story, when these grouse team members are on the Vita uh, again, this this high plateau. Um, with no other food, I mean, it's, it is frozen tundra, mm-hmm. and the only food is reindeer. Uh, the only way to survive is killing a reindeer, and every day Paulson goes out on a hunt. His team is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. He needs to get a reindeer. Um, and uh, on December 23rd, uh, 
1942, um, fateful because that was the day he finally um, found a reindeer, tracked a herd, killed uh, killed one, um, and then pretty much from that point forward, these these men celebrate a, a wonderful Christmas with reindeer steaks, but <laughs> begin to consume uh, only reindeer. And when I say only reindeer, I mean every part of the reindeer, wow. We're, except for the hooves uh, and uh, I think some cartilage in the ear that they could not consume, but pretty much everything else. Um, and and not to not to gross out your your listeners, but mm-hmm. I think it's sort of emblematic of this. You know, they needed nutrients. They needed uh, you know not just the meat, but they needed nutrients. And, and the one way they could find that was eating the uh, moss, the half-digested moss uh, that the reindeer carried in their stomach. Wow. I mean, this is this is the sort of level of uh, survival in- intensity uh, we're dealing with over the course of, of this story for, for these guys. And I think it's 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 not just the sort of survival physically. And I think mm-hmm. you're to your point. Um, what I loved about this part of the narrative. Um, because we often look at history like uh, from hindsight and gosh, it's really good that these guys did this and yes, they succeeded and there was no doubt that they would succeed. Uh, but after, you know, two and a half months of living out there in the wild in a small cabin surrounded uh, by snow and barely surviving, Mm -hmm. you know, Paulson and his team, you know, they began to, you know, fray and began to lose hope. Uh, and it took everything that they could do to muster um, to fight back the thoughts that they were having, which were, is this worth it? Yeah. We, are we going to succeed? I don't think we're going to succeed. This is all for naught. You know, I mean, these are the thoughts that they had. Uh, they persevered, but I think it, it's not being accurate to history not to look at those moments. I think those moments are important. Yeah, absolutely. With hindsight, oh, they struggle, but I know they're going to make it, so I'm not not going to get worked up about it. But yeah, if it's, <laughs> if you've gotten to the point, if you could put yourself in that moment, I mean, they probably couldn't remember anything other than snow, you know, chasing after run, reindeer and tundra. Uh, and I just imagine if you had told a German soldier, look, I got these guys drinking reindeer blood, eating half-chewed moss. That's that's what they're willing to do to stay in here and try to defeat you. I mean, I, I would think that would give some of the uh, some of the occupiers pause, but they are, they are literally staying in there. But like you were saying earlier, emotionally, they are starting to crack from the strain. And I love the part in the book when they're, because their waiting is going to go on for months. And early, I think it's early 1943 when they just start literally so they don't go insane they each like take turns almost like holding forth holding court lecturing on various subjects that they knew about or they maybe they spoke about their previous jobs but just anything to deal with the monotony and the time just night after night of just waiting until another opportunity could come to strike at the uh, at the plant yes i mean i i too you know sort of is so it's just a real moment, you know, to, to have these guys, you know, uh, for instance, Arne Shellstrup, uh telling these guys basically how toilets work or, uh, you know, how to, uh, how to plumb a line. I mean, <laughs> just, just so there's, I mean, what you also have to sort of be aware of is it's light like five hours a day. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. And yeah. they can't waste fuel on light. So they are essentially in this one-room cabin in the dark alone for hundreds of days, you know, over 100 days. Um, And, you know, uh, living with one person is sometimes hard enough. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, living with three in the confined space of a shed uh, where none of you have showered or (laughs) shaved or... Yeah. And you're starving, and you're cold, and there's hoar frost growing on the walls, um, and you you can't step outside without you know binding yourself up. I mean, it's right. It's tough going. 
Yeah. So so they're sitting there waiting for the opportunity. Now the next team, uh, Gunnerside, is still is still um, getting ready. They're they're practicing. But but I'm, and again, I'm probably going to butcher his name. Ronberg, Ronberg, uh, the, who's Ronenberg. Ronenberg, who's going to be in charge? Can you give us an idea of some of the stuff that he was doing to get prepared, knowing the uh, elements and the conditions that he and his men were going to be getting into? So Ronenberg was was a very meticulous man, um, a very me- uh, meticulous uh, planner, and he of course knew uh, what this weather was like. He knew that they needed to potentially survive for a while in this cold, and they need to escape. And you know they can't just char- you know charter a flight out of there. They're going to have to escape hundreds of miles on cross country skis wow. to the border of Sweden to get free afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so he begins preparing, um, uh, you know sleeping bags there there are there are no sleeping bags in in london at this point that can uh, weather the norwegian winter so mm-hmm. he designs and 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 sketches out and goes to a bedding manufacturer and 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 designs his own sleeping bags for his men right um he he they they design uh sleds uh they they partic- particular boots they go to a norwegian professor and 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 uh, assemble rations that had never been used before in the field, mm. these Kryberg rations. And so not only are they doing that to prepare, but they are, with live Tronstadt, practicing day after day on a mock wooden plant of the heavy water facility uh, in order that they, they know every nook and cranny of this plant, and then they go in, they're going to be able to do it. Right. So, so they're practicing, they're getting ready. Um, they could do this probably in their sleep now because they've done it on the model so much, but they still have to get over there. So there are storms there. They make an attempted drop, which doesn't work. But I think is it uh, mid-February, finally, Gunnerside is able to go in and this time wisely not use the gliders, but just parachute in and deal with that as best they could. So yes, they you know I mean it's just an assembly of disasters prior to that uh, that we don't need to go into. But you know one time they had to come back and and drop all their equipment out and almost crash land. Another time they were their plane was eaten up by a German uh, anti uh, aircraft <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, shells. I mean and they barely made it. They finally get there mid February. Uh, they're down on the ground. They're assembling all their equipment that they dropped with them. And the worst blizzard in in a hundred years hits. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I, and I, oh, sorry, it's the ahead. kind of blizzard. It's it's the kind of blizzard that if you're walking upright, the wind can literally pick you up and throw you off your feet. Uh, it's the kind of blizzard where day turns into night and you see nothing but white. Uh, and it just you know for for several days they barely survived. You know they found a cabin, they hunkered down. And when they woke up finally and the blizzard had quieted, the landscape was, you know, something entirely different because of the drifts of snow and, and all the rest. Wow. So I guess the good news is with that kind of weather, it's not like German patrols are going to be in the area looking for them. But again, they had, like you said, they had to survive uh, Mother Nature. So so the two teams get together, Gunnerside and Sparrow, and they're planning out their adventure. And I thought this was interesting. The leader decided to take a vote on how they would actually proceed against the plant and go in there and sabotage as opposed to just saying, I'm in charge. This is how I'm going to do it. I mean, he relied on these men's intelligence and their, because they were, they had a keen desire to be there to do their part. And so everybody brought their best foot forward and they actually were discussing and voting on how to proceed against this, uh, against this, uh, water, heavy water plant treatment, uh, area. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a brilliant moment, um, on the part of the Ronenberg, the leader of the operation, you know, he had individuals who were much more experienced than he was his second command, uh, who, you know, is, is a wonderful character in the story was American born and just a bit of a rascal. Um, you know, Runnenberg needed to make sure that, that everyone was on board. And listen, I mean, they thought that this operation was a suicide mission. Right. Um, they thought that they could get in probably, but they weren't going to get out. Yeah. If they could maybe, maybe one or two of them would have got out, but they would have been captured. Right. Um, they were prepared to, they had suicide capsules, uh, sewn into their lapels and elsewhere. Um, 
So when Rothenberg was planning this, you know, he wanted he, he wanted his men with him, um, and you know, it was a tough choice. Do we come down from the mountains above? Uh, but there's minefield. Do we cross the single lane suspension bridge that is super well guarded by the Germans, particularly since they knew from Operation Freshman that this was the entry point for for uh, the previous go? Uh, or do they do the third method, which actually Tronstadt in London suggested, which was climb down the valley that, that Vermilk is in, um, cross a river, and then scale a 500-foot cliff? I mean, of three options, I'm not sure which one I would have taken <laughs> other than other than being like, I'm going to go to Oslo and, yeah. uh, you know, have some aqua beach yeah. and I'll, I'll wait see for you later. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So, so, so they're in position. They're they're getting. They decided how they're going to attack. And I'm just going to let you take it from here. For all this planning, all the sacrifice, all the, those British um, sappers. Every there's, you know, they've lost men already. They're getting ready to go in. They're going to try and make a difference in this race to get the atomic bomb. If you could just sketch out for us their uh, the actual act of the sabotage, please. Sure. So. It's the, the night of uh, February 27th, 28th, um, about 8 in the evening. Uh, they're at a cabin uh, up in the opposite part of the valley. Um, it's go time. Uh, Runberg gives the sort of last-minute instructions to his men. Uh, and one of his last instructions is someone has to make it. <laughs> I don't care what you have to do, who does it. But one person has to make it into that plant and blow this thing up. Right. And these, these, that is, is, is the essence of, of what they're facing. So they, they ski down, and, you know, I open the book in this sort of very poignant scene of these skiers uh, going through these woods very quietly uh, because I, I imagined it very much that way, and, and that's how they, they told it, uh, until they, you know, they, they get down into the – to the valley at the bottom of the valley and now they're looking up and again this is february so it's extremely cold it's very dark um and they're looking up at a 500 foot cliff that's not a sheer cliff um it's sort of both a sheer cliff and a scramble right um but it's icebound and it's dark and they don't know what to hold on to um and as ronenberg said later and later in his life um, you know, he, he essentially felt like he was standing at, on a street in the middle of a metropolis looking up at a huge skyscraper and told, that's where you got to go. Um, and that said, they, they manage one helping the other, and one person almost falling and uh, a lot of bravery and a lot of exertion. They make it to the top of this cliffside where there's a railway line perched on the edge of this cliff and it's it's actually still there today and it's you just can't believe they did it um and it leads straight into the plant and the germans not you know i don't know how to say it but i understand why they didn't guard it that much uh no i mean no one possibly could see that anyone would do this not only in the middle of the day in a nice summer, um, yeah. but let alone at night in the cold in the middle of winter. Um, so, but they managed to reach this railway line. They wait until the change in the guard after midnight. Uh, they cut through a gate uh, with a pair of uh, bolt cutters that they bought at a London mechanic shop, <laughs> and they break in. There's a covering party led by Newt Hauklid, um, who's going to make sure that the guards don't interfere uh, five men are in the covering party. There's four men who are on the demolition team. That demolition team is split into two two-man teams. Uh, Rodenberg's leading one. Uh, his uh, old friend, uh, Stromsheim, is leading the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they descend on, on the plant. 
they get to the door that they believe is supposed to be open and it's locked. Um, thankfully, uh, like Tronstadt gave them every bit of information that you could ever possibly want about this plant. Right. Uh, and there was a, uh, a little tunnel that pipes and uh, conduits ran through on the side of the building. Um, they found themselves, uh, you know, coursing their way through that. Uh, they dropped down into the plant and uh, the operation to blow up uh, is, is going off. Yeah, because that because the uh, the tunnel I thought was going to have a a, a a railing or a net or a guard or something over it. But again, who would assume who would climb through that, crawl through that in, in this area? I mean, again, you you can't blame the Germans too much for being a little lax in their security. No, absolutely. And so Runneberg crawls through this tunnel with his his seconds, and they drop down, and they're now in the basement of the heavy water plant, mm-hmm. the sort of soft underbelly of Vermont, because the, the, the Germans never in their wildest imaginations thought anyone would actually get into the plant. <laughs> and so there was one guard, a Norwegian night watchman, uh, uh, foreman, looking over the heavy water plant to make sure it was running okay. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there was nobody there. Um, wow. And so they have... Not all the time in the world, uh, because they have five people outside covering them. Uh, But they have, you know, over the course of a half hour, time to set individual explosives that have already been pre-prepared, plastique, to blow up the 18 uh, heavy water cylinders that Mm. uh, purified the heavy water to 99.5%. So they set those, uh, and uh, and... And in the middle of setting them, the window is shattered, and it's the other demolition team who didn't find the tunnel uh, <laughs> and decided right. to break in another way. Um, together, they set the rest of the the, uh, the explosives. There's a moment where the – I love this moment in the story. It's the night watchman sort of stops them and <laughs> knows what's happening here, clearly. Right. People are going to blow this up and, you know. Um, and he can't find his glasses. <laughs> so, which is just this bizarre little, very human moment uh, um, in this story where he's like, I can't find my glasses. <laughs> and and so Ronenberg stops setting the explosives, stands away. He's searching around on the desk for this guy's explosive, for his glasses. Right. Um, and, uh, and eventually gives them to him, uh, continues with the work. Yeah. Um, sets and they they set off the the, the timers, um, and or the fuses, and uh, and boom. So yeah, so so they so they get in there. They are able to set their charges just like they had rehearsed. They get out, and I, and I think if I remember correctly, the foreman and someone else they might have run across are like, okay, go over there and get as far away as you can. And I didn't think about this before, where they tell the guys to keep your mouth open, I guess, to help deal with the pressure once the explosion goes off. Yes, they, they, they instructed them to run up the steps, keep your mouth open uh, in order uh, that their eardrums weren't uh, oh, gotcha. ruptured. Oh. Uh, because of the the pressure, right? Um, and so there, you know, you imagine this at, at night. There's this, you know, boom! This explosion. They've set up 18 uh, packets of plastic. You would imagine this just eruption of flame and fire, and this huge noise, and this sturm and drang. And to Newt Hauklid, who's the covering guy, um, all he hears is a little boom, a little muffled, <laughs> silent almost imperceptible right. um, concussion. And he's like, was that it? <laughs> is that what we, is that what we came for? I mean, it's just, again, it's just one of these moments because, you know, this heavy water plant, again, the reason we couldn't bomb it from the air is because it's in the basement of this right. fortress. And so an explosion is, is not what he thought. Um, it was enough for a guard to come out and for how could it do? You know, ready is uh, his. Uh, yeah, that part drove me. Ready attack on him. Yeah, that that part drove me crazy. The guard would go out, come back out with the guardhouse, go back in, come back out. He's like, "Did I? Did I hear something?" But you're right. Between the howling of the wind and the noise of the factory, yeah, you 
you could barely hear. And I was expecting, like I, I like all the other guys, I was expecting this huge explosion, gas and concrete going all over the place. But again, it was in the basement. Their mission is accomplished, but now they've got to get out of there. And the Germans are going to be alerted, so it's going to be a massive hunt. So if you could just give us a little bit of, of, about their escape, please. Again, because they've got to deal with the cold, they've got to deal with the snow, and now they're being chased by some very upset Germans. Yeah, so 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 now is the beginning of the of the mass escape um, for these guys, and you know they they get down the they get down the the cliff again, and they cross the river, and then they uh, a, a portion of them begin this long two hundred mile escape, uh, and there are others uh, that are going to remain um, in the area mm-hmm. so they they can um, organize resistance cells. Uh, around uh, Vermilk. Wow. Um, and so it's this, you know, there's this epic manhunt, um, thousands of troops uh, descending on, on the area. Um, some of these guys um, go one way, some go the other way, and there's uh, some tremendous, uh, I think, some <laughs> tremendous escape stories. And what's right. great, I think, what I love about this book is I thought that, again, I thought this, not about what a great job I did on the book, but this story right. um, is I had always heard of Operation Gunnerside, um, you know, where these guys go into the plant, they blow it up. It's this very successful mission. Um, and really, that's the midway point of my book. Yes. Um, it's it's the halfway. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't say, I, you know, I for the for the listeners, I want to I want to tell them everything. Um, but I also wanted them to read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So because I was going to say, okay, so they blow up the plant. The Germans never get another ounce of heavy water again, and everything is fine, which obviously is nowhere near uh, to what happens. So, so we won't go to the very end. But the Germans, because they know how important this is, or I guess certain elements in Berlin, they know how important this is. So they are going to spare no expense into getting at least this part of the factory up and running again. And before too long, uh, heavy water is coming out of the plant. Yes, and um, the Allies know this uh, thanks to Schinnerlin uh, and several of these. Uh, operatives, uh, most notably Hauklid, remains in Norway, in the area, um, building resistance cells, but also keeping a very close eye on Vermuk and ready to, to take action when, when the call comes. And it definitely comes. Yeah. So so we won't give the ending away, but just suffice it to say the Germans have got it back online. They are um, getting access to heavy water to keep their experiments going because they um, are trying very hard. Obviously, by the time 1943 comes, the Germans, I think, realize that they need something other than their conventional weapons. But here was the part, and again, this book has everything in it, every element in a story it could possibly have, where the Allies basically lie to Tronstad, uh, Trotstad, and they he, they don't mention anything of, about bombing to him. They don't even bring it up. They just say, yeah, we'll, we'll pitch the idea of not to do that. But then they do, and, and like you were saying earlier, a lot of civilians do get hurt. A lot of lives are ruined, and as Tronstad knew, it doesn't work. So the bombing was for nothing. Clearly, they have to do something other than bombing. They're going to have to go back in. They're going to have to do something. But that's when the um, the uh, Norwegians are able to step in and, again, do some very amazing things to try to stop the Germans from getting this critical element to you know stop them from developing the atomic bomb. Yes. And I think, you know, there's... I wouldn't call it controversy uh, as much as historical um, back and forth about were the operations of America important? Mm-hmm. Um, because by the summer of 1942, while the Americans were racing ahead with the Manhattan Project, um, the Germans were saying, you know, the war is not going great. We need whatever we're going to invest in. It's got to have pretty immediate uh uh, payoff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and so some people sort of take that and say, well, heavy water that that wasn't that that became unimportant. Um, but I couldn't 
I couldn't disagree more, and not only because I wrote the book about it, because I've done the research on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Kurt Diedner, who was the head of the German Tom Brown program, who was the one who wanted to build the bomb, mm-hmm. who wanted to build a bomb by creating a heavy water reactor to, build, to get plutonium to build an explosive. He was told very clearly, if you build a heavy water reactor, if you show us that this can be done, that power can be generated, that, that we can make this work, we will shower you with money. Uh, um, you will have every resource. And so the, the only way he could show that it worked was to have enough heavy water. He had enough uranium. He didn't right. have enough heavy water. Right. And so these activities, the gunner side, um, this continuing pressure from the Allies to bomb, and the, ultimately the, the, the sort of last-minute uh, uh, sabotage uh, by Hauklid, uh all was for purpose. And, and had a reason. And even if it, let's say, let's argue it didn't. Let's say that Kurt Diemer was never told that. Right. The Allies simply didn't know. As far as they, right. they, they could know, the Germans had it. They were close to a bomb. They needed to do everything in their power to stop it. Um, so it makes these events, um, you know, worthwhile, I think, uh, from both perspectives. Right, because like you've said before, we're looking at this in hindsight. We know both sides of the story. The Allies didn't know how far the um, the Germans had gone, and they've got to be thinking, well, if we can develop this, why can't they develop it with their scientists? So clearly the race is on. But, yeah, you, you sprinkle uh, Diebner, if I'm saying his name right, the German scientist, you, sprink, you sprinkle his story throughout it, and he's just getting closer, and he's struggling, and he's not giving up, and he's making deals. He's doing whatever he's going to do, and he's going to get something. And I think near the end of the story, maybe we can't get the atomic bomb, but maybe we could get some really nasty material and I'm being very general there because I'm not sure, but to spread over London, I mean, they could have still, if they could have developed something, they could have made a lot of people. They could have built a dirty bomb. Yeah, exactly. They they could have made a lot of lives miserable. So I was, I was just sure that they were going to get to a point where here's a bomb, but then it's too late, but he does not stop. And that just really keeps the story going. So, so there is more to the story than what we've covered, covered today. The, um, uh, there, there's more to the end. And actually, you take the story all the way to the end when the Germans have to pull out and they get their country back. Uh, but I just want to say on a personal note, and I'll certainly let you, um, if there's anything else you want to throw out, please feel free to do so. But since I've been doing this uh, podcast for five years and I've read a ton of books, um, I think I can count on one hand the number of books that by the time I finished reading it, I was feeling every emotion there was all at the same time. I was happy for them. I was glad the Germans were gone. I was glad that we uh, that they didn't get the bomb. I was sad that the Americans used the bomb. The people, and I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, a lot of these people end up disappearing or dying or they suffer losses and family members. But you literally threw everything into this story, and it just painted a detailed portrait for someone like me, I know the, the broad strokes of World War II, but I enjoy this book very much, and I certainly every encourage everyone to get it because it was just a great read, and I could not put it down until the end. I had to find out where the Germans, how far the Germans were going to get, um, and it was just <laughs> absolutely amazing, and and I just enjoyed it very much. Uh, um, I I really appreciate it. I I, I work on these things for three years or, or more, and it's a, it's it's. Really, it's lovely to, to hear that it had its uh, hopefully intended effect. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I, I would like to say uh, w- one last thing, because I think mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of a, a, a kind of way to poignantly end it. Um, these, Paulson, was Paulson, the head of Grouse, mm-hmm. uh, when he, he was told um, right before he dropped in by parachute into Norway, the reason why he was being sent. He was one of the few who actually knew. Right. Uh, he was told by his bosses, you are going to Norway to be a part of this operation because the Germans are building something that could blow up London. Wow. And Paulson's response and feeling that he shared not only to his second in command, but ultimately to his men is, that's probably not true. <laughs> They're probably just saying that to make sure that we, we, we do a good job at whatever they want us to do here in our hometown. Right. And I, I think it's important because 
you know, I wrote this book. It's a, this sort of epic story about stopping the Germans from getting the atomic bomb. But for Paulsen and Helberg and Haugland and Kjellstrup and Ronenberg and Hauglid, Stromsheim and the others, they were doing it not for the bomb. Right. They were doing it for their country. And they weren't even doing it to, uh, for their country. They were doing it for their family. They were trying to stop, get the Germans the hell out of Norway um, and they get their freedom back. And I think, you know, again, it's what is so sort of, for me, very compelling about this. Yes, there was some grand stage stuff about this story, mm-hmm. but at its heart, it's about these guys, you know? Yeah. And they just want, you know, they're patriots and they, they want the country back. Right. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, everyone can identify with. Um, not just World War II and, you know, yeah. the atomic bomb. Yeah, you don't think you can be a hero until some guys with guns come into your area and take over everything you have, and then you're willing to go through anything, sacrifice anything to get your area back, your hometown, your to take care of your family. It's amazing what we're all capable of if we have to, and these men were certainly capable of a lot. They were, and, and remember, and like you said, I mean, these were these were postmen and plumbers, and uh, students, and engineers, and scientists, and teachers. Wow! Uh, very few of them were military men at the start of the war, um, and that they, they achieved all this. And I, 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 I think there's a lesson in there, and I'll let uh, listeners and <laughs> and readers hopefully sort of plummet, uh, just as I did writing it. Well, again, Mr. Bascom, thank you very much. Again, this comes out early next month, I believe, May 4th. May 3rd. May 3rd. Everybody yeah, check it out. The, the Winter, Winter Fortress, The Epic Mission of To Sabotage Hitler's Atomic Bomb by Mr. Neil Bascom. Again, thank you very much. For those of you who get it, um, whether it's audio or, or you're going to get it electronically or the good old-fashioned paper copy, it is a riveting read that you will not be able to put down, and you're going to lose a lot of sleep over it, but you're going to enjoy it at the same time. Mr. Bascom, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.